So without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce my friend, Roger Kimball, to accept the 2019 Thomas L. Phillip Award for Career Achievement. Well, thank you, Rebecca. I could listen to you all night. <laughs> I, f I feel a bit like, uh, like Cecily Cardew at the, uh, toward the end of the importance of being earnest when having absorbed some enthusiastic encomia from Ernest, she exclaims, your frankness does you great credit as she sought for her diary to inscribe the uh, adulation. But I left, my, I left my diary at home, so I will confine myself to a few words of heartfelt gratitude, not only for what you said, but also <clears throat> for taking the time to be here with us to say it. I know how busy you are, and I really appreciate it. Um, I'm grateful as well to the Fund for American Studies for the singular honor of bestowing upon me the venerable Thomas L. Phillips Award. You will find a list of previous honorees in your program. And to say that this is an impressive list would be to dally with frivolous litotes. It makes me blush to be among such company. Now, had the fates been a little more generous, one name that I feel sure would occupy a place on that escutcheon is the name of Joseph Rago, for whom a new fellowship has been named. Joe, who died at the shocking age of 34, was known to the world as a brilliant editorial writer for the Wall Street Journal. His labors there won him a Pulitzer Prize when he was still in his 20s. For more than a decade, he was known to the readers of my magazine, The New Criterion, as a contributor and toward the end of his life as our fiction critic, a post from which he ably lived up to the poet Horace's injunction to delight as well as instruct. I'm happy to note that Joe's parents Nancy and Paul Rago are with us tonight. I wish that he could be as well. In what was perhaps Joe's last piece for the new criterion, he cast an amused, an amused, <clears throat> though gimlet eye over the eructation of impotent puerile fury that greeted the election of Donald Trump among the literati. Quote, this Ages nine and up coping mechanism, Joe wrote, does capture something significant about political and literary culture, circa 2017. Too much of politics and of human experience, Joe went on, is being fitted into neat, good, bad binaries that appeal to feelings and status, not to the accurate representation of the world the accurate representation of the world. How quaint 
that phrase sounds in an era of fake news and the wanton trampling of truth, not least by those entrusted with its dissemination. Journalists, yes, but also many educators and other unworthy custodians of the achievements of our culture. The institution that became the Fund for American Studies was founded in 1967, a period of hysterical narcissism and malignant dissimulation not unlike our own. Indeed, a comparison between the two periods, though beyond what we have time to discuss tonight, would be illuminating, <clears throat> both in its similarities and the differences of the pathologies at play. Among the founders of the fund was my friend, the late William F. Buckley, Jr., a man who, with graceful wit, at once decorous and deadly, also dedicated his life to the accurate representation of the world. It would be interesting to ask what Bill, who died in 2008, would make of the contemporary cultural and political scene. He'd witnessed something similar, of course, throughout the 1960s and 70s. And after all, the sage of Ecclesiastes was right. There is nothing new under the sun. Though many of our most prominent cultural figures seem to believe that they occupy a unique perch at the very apogee of virtue and moral rectitude and are therefore entitled, oh, how entitled, to discard the achievements and the admonitions of the past as so many false starts and dead ends on the way to true enlightenment, which is to say, to whatever they happen to believe at the moment. It is important to remember, I think, how general was the assault on our civilization in the 60s. It wasn't just protests against the Vietnam War or the sexual revolution the new hedonism. What was aimed at was nothing less than what Nietzsche called the transvaluation of all values. Among other things, it represented a categorical repudiation of the American consensus, not just its engines of prosperity and individual liberty, but also the basic tenets of our self-understanding, tenets that went back through English liberalism and the Scottish Enlightenment to the political meditations of the Greeks and the Romans. We see something similar today in a different modality. In some ways, indeed, the assault on the fundamental values of our civilization is more thoroughgoing today than it was in the 1960s. This is partly because those conducting the assault are not launching their fusillades from outside the establishment, but are themselves well integrated into and often highly placed members of the establishment. They are, in a word, the elite. It is also partly because the assault is no longer undertaken in the name of freedom and truth, however spurious, but strange though it sounds, against both, against both freedom and truth. George Orwell was right when he observed that the first indispensable step toward freedom is a willingness to call things by their real names, 
We, which is to say our masters in the media and the cultural establishment, have lost that fortitude. The triumph of political correctness has encouraged an epidemic allergy to candor. The hope is that the embrace of the euphemism will alter not only our language, but also the reality that our language names. And to a large extent, it is working. Unfreedom does not become freedom by calling it free. Reality continues to check the fantasies of our narratives. But the misprision can help spread and reinforce the fog of self-deceit. There is a sense in which the triumph of political correctness erodes free speech chiefly by negative means. It promulgates speech codes, rules against so-called hate speech, and the like. <clears throat> but I suspect that its gravest damage is done by instilling a timidity of spirit among its charges. The reluctance to speak the truth instills an unwillingness or even an inability to see the truth. Thus it is that the reign of political correctness quietly aids and abets the complacency and unfreedom that we experience today. This atmosphere of supine anesthesia is an invitation to tyranny. It took several centuries and much blood and toil to wrest freedom from the recalcitrant forces of arbitrary power. It is a melancholy fact that what took ages to achieve can be undone in the twinkling of an eye. I do not think it is properly appreciated yet just how bizarre it is that socialism appears to be making a serious comeback and not just as a common room amusement among ignorant students who have no idea what socialism is, but also among serious political uh, candidates, presidential candidates, and members of Congress, some of whom anyway, know only too well what that murderous ideology entails. Winston Churchill was too kind when he said that socialism was, quote, the philosophy of failure, the creed of ignorance, and the gospel of envy. All of that is correct. But beyond that, socialism rests on two fundamental goals, the abolition of private property and the equalization of wealth. A corollary to the achievement of those goals, as socialist totalitarians the world over have instantly recognized, is terror and a police state. And yet here we are, here we are, with serious proposals to institute socialism in the United States. It seems to me that we are at a crossroads where our complacency colludes dangerously with the blunt opportunism of events. As Rebecca mentioned, I'm very fond of Aristotle's observation that courage is the most important virtue because without courage, we are unable to practice the other virtues. The life of freedom requires the courage to recognize and to name the realities that impinge upon us. Day is night, peace is war, love is hate, out of such linguistic capitulations as Orwell showed in 1984, totalitarian tyranny is born. We've all read the book, have we learned the hard lesson. Free speech, it turns out, 
is like other freedoms. Its victory is never permanent. It is a melancholy truth that, what the right of free, that the right of free speech, like other civilizational achievements, must constantly be renewed to survive. That was one of Edmund Burke's central insights. It is also, incidentally, one of the founding insights of the Fund for American Studies. But it is an insight that is regularly forgotten until reality intrudes upon our reverie to remind us. Every generation finds that it must work anew to win or at least maintain the freedoms bequeathed to it by earlier generations. What was argued for yesterday and won is today once again up for grabs, which moves patience and perseverance to the head of the queue of political virtues. You already made the argument, but it always turns out that you must make it again. During the Japanese bombardment of Shanghai in 1932, the Austrian essayist Karl Krauss was anguishing over the placement of commas in a column he was writing. It might seem futile at such a moment, he told a friend, but concluded that if those who are obliged, if those who are obliged to look after commas had always made sure they were in the right place, then Shanghai would not be burning. Was that hyperbolic? Perhaps. But the general point holds, language matters. Achieving the accurate representation of the world is not only a linguistic desideratum, it is also a political imperative. Much of our culture has collided against the accurate representation of the world. We owe the Fund for American Studies a great debt for understanding what is at stake in the seemingly pedestrian activity of telling the truth. Long may it prosper.